What's up, everybody? I'm JJ John J. Stramski. And I'm Jason Goff. And if you haven't heard, The Ringer has gone local. I'm bringing the fire. I'm bringing the rain from the Big Apple with my show, New York, New York. And I'm repping Chi-Town with my new show, The Full Go on All Things Chicago. We've got episodes three nights a week with all the reaction to the local teams and guests. Plus bonus episodes around all the big games and storylines. So whether you're uptown, downtown, in the burbs, or a transplant. Make sure you follow New York, New York, and The Full Go on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. It's the Ringer Gambling Show, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back, and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus, and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100Gambler and visit rg-help.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Welcome to the Ringer Gambling Show. We are joined today by Ben Solak, and we're going to go through all the biggest games of this week's slate, get Ben's valuable insights into those games. I'll share some of my own thoughts. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll talk sports betting. Of course, this is the gambling show after all. But before we dive deep into that, Ben, I need to get your take about the biggest thing that's going on in the NFL space this week, and that is this rise of COVID cases. The first two months of the season, there were only 61 players added to the COVID list. Within the last 48 hours, there have been over 75. And I can't even keep track of the new ones that keep getting added. Today, I know Baker Mayfield just got put on, and that's why the line on the Cleveland Browns Raiders game is off the board and why we won't be discussing that game in detail because we don't even know who's going to be available. My personal take on there was the spike, we've already shared that. And that's why the gambling show is basically like the prognostication show. You might as well call it the prognostication show because when you are betting on games, you have to try to predict the future. It is not easy. As you've seen firsthand since you started sports betting, particularly on the NFL, it's like trying to predict the future outcome of a sporting event between a shitload of different players on different teams with different coaches and different strategies and different errors from the officials and the ball bounces different ways. I mean, it's bananas. And the fact that we can actually predict this with any level of certainty or accuracy is actually pretty surprising when you couch it in those terms. Um, but the bottom line, especially when you're talking about they put a point spread up there and we're trying to beat that, we're not just trying to pick the outright winner of these games. Um, but when we're talking about other things that factor in, we try to stay ahead of that as well. And before Thanksgiving, on this very show, not this episode, but on the Ringer Gambling Show, we discussed that I believed we are going to see a rise in COVID cases coming very quickly. I looked at the trends and the curves from last year, and I expected that we were going to see a pretty similar rise, except 
monstrously spiked compared to what we had last year. And we talked about how that needs to factor into how you're placing your bets and bet timing and whether or not you want to be able to get out of games in case things arise and how close attention you need to pay to the news if you are betting early in some of these markets. Um, At this point, though, I'm a little bit of a loss for words to figure out what the NFL needs to do here to try to get through the rest of this season. And the thing that I keep coming back to is what did we do last year? How did we get through it last year? Because we didn't even have a vaccine during last year's NFL season, and we still got through the season. Now, we didn't have the Delta and the Omicron or whatever the hell you pronounce it and these these things that are more contagious. But the fact of the matter is what works no matter what, and that's distancing, right? Distancing works with any type of contagious virus. So I think the NFL needs to very quickly put that into place. And then I would absolutely think that daily testing is the way to go here to prevent outbreaks within teams. You're not going to prevent one-off guys from getting it from their families, but to better prevent going unnoticed within the facility, most of these players are vaccinated, which means they're only getting tested once a week. Doesn't make any sense to me. Odell Beckham Jr. obviously was contagious when he played in the game because he tested positive the very next morning. Um, He was in the huddle. He was in the locker room with all the other guys on the Rams. Like, It just doesn't make sense to test only once a week. And I know the players, you'd have to change shit with the Players Association to actually get that to be passed. But if I'm a smart team and I'm looking for competitive advantages, I'm telling my guys, take a rapid test at your house before you come in each day. Like if I'm Tom Brady or somebody like that, like we don't need this spreading within the locker room so that a whole position group, like the whole offensive line has to miss a game. That's going to fuck up your ability to earn a number one seed and get a bye. So, I mean, I don't know. Do you have any ideas short of like the, the anything that's would require players association stepping in and changing laws that would allow us to get through this season quicker? Yeah. I, uh, Firstly, knowing exactly what does and does not have to go through the NFLPA is above my pay grade, which maybe it's, it's not supposed to be, but I don't know, right? I don't have that. Uh, I like that. That process is something that obviously, like the NFL and the NFLPA, has been figuring out over the course of the last two seasons. So it's, it's something that is is difficult to to see from out, outside. But I think, right, when you talk about like the protocols from last year and the fact that that when we didn't have the vaccine at the time, there was so much. Uh, mandatory spacing, right? There, there, there was so much distance that was necessary. That's part of now the uh, the intensive protocol that they have for teams who are experiencing an outbreak, which is what the Rams activated yesterday, right? Like the the news was kind of lost in all the other COVID cases, but the Rams, like literally, it's like activated intense pro- intensive protocol. It's very like, you know, uh, it, it sounds very like, like scary, but basically what it means is that um, all of the meetings are going to be virtual. Uh, there's going to be no in-person gatherings at all outside of the team facility and outside of team team travel. Um, there's going to be no meals, only going to be grab-and-go meals. Um, locker room use is strongly discouraged and strictly limited to small groups of short periods of times. All players and staff wear masks and face shield throughout practice. Players and staff always wear masks, including the weight room. All uh, PCR tests received before any player or staff member enters the facility, right? So it's it's that intensive protocol is very similar to the protocols that they were running last year. And I think that's where you, you should expect most teams to end up. Because the point of if we're not doing daily testing for everybody, which if you remember was a contentious point, like Cole Beasley brought it up during the summer, whether or not there's daily testing for vaccinated peoples. Uh, if that's going to ha- start happening, then we need to start acting like we did, which is that everybody might have COVID at any given time, which is obviously difficult. Puts a lot of stress on teams, asks teams to be very honest with the league, 
and requires a lot of money from the league. All those things suck. But also, uh, COVID cases across multiple locker rooms suck a lot more. And so that's probably where you have to be is we're going to, this is an, an, an intensive breakout. This is a serious spike. I'm in the state of Michigan right now where it's worse than it's ever been. So you're going to have to start treating it like we treated it last year because that's where we're at right now. 100% agree. Um, we love the NFL more than anything. And so we just want to see the guys stay healthy and the players be able to play out the season because that's what they all want to do as well. And we want to watch them. So uh, you're going to have to make some sort of change. And I do think as, as callous as it may sound, the competitive advantage aspect of this does creep into things a little bit as well. And if I am a team and I'm working uh, to try to win a championship, I'm trying to do everything that I can to ensure that we don't have outbreaks within our facility. Um, and the ways that we were able to do that last year to a great extent uh, is exactly what we should try to implement this year, in my opinion. That being said, we got a big slate of games, Ben. And so I want to dig into one game, and I want to ask you this question off the top because it it surprised me a little bit. Um, which passing attack after the first month of the season, look around the league, 32 teams, can you guess which passing attack in the NFL has been the most efficient based upon EPA after the first month of the season? Mm, I mean, like this feels, I, I know what game we're talking about, so it feels like I should just guess Indianapolis and then be right because that's what we're happening. But uh, New England? Dude, New England Patriots, (laughs) the New England Patriots rank number one in the first half of games from week four onward in EPA per pass attempt. It is absolutely absurd how underrated this passing attack has been over the vast majority of the season. Now, let me, let me paint some context behind this. So Mac Jones gets his first start week one. He's a a rookie, right? A total rookie battling with Cam Newton in the preseason for who is going to start. Over the first nine weeks, Mac Jones played just one team that ranked below average in pass defense. One out of nine games. He's playing teams against top 10 pass defenses, six games against them, like the Bucs, the Panthers, the Cowboys, the Chargers, the Saints, and, and actually the Texans somehow wind up in that grouping as well. It was the third toughest start to the season for any passing offense. His offensive line was dinged up. And despite all of that, in the first half of games since week four, the Patriots are number one in EPA per pass attempt, number one in yards per pass attempt, 8.3, number two in success rate at 56%, and number four in explosive pass rate at 12%. And yet we're talking as if Mac Jones the coaches have no confidence in him. We can't. He can't do anything. The last game that he played, remember, they took the ball out of his hands basically completely and just ran it in the wind. If you include all four quarters of games, so forget the first half. Oh, Warren, you're just trying to skew the numbers because you're only including first half. Fine, fine. All four quarters, the Patriots slipped to number two in EPA per pass attempt behind Arizona, but they stay number one in yards per attempt. They stay number two in success rate, and they improve to number one in explosive pass rate. Brutal schedule, and yet despite that, this team's efficiency when they do pass the ball has been phenomenal, phenomenal. The other thing that I think is interesting here, Ben, is that we have never before seen a rookie quarterback have to go until week 14 to take his bye. And as we both know, 
that's a time for rookies. I mean, all quarterbacks and all teams, and I do think teams wait until they're by and put too much emphasis on, okay, we'll do this during our bye week. They should be doing more self-scouting over the course of the season. After every single game, do some self-scouting. But a lot of them tend to like dive deeper into it during their bye week. Um, but for a rookie, that's even more important, right? Because there's a lot of things that you're doing for a rookie quarterback during that bye week when you're self-scouting. Like, what do we need to do with him differently? What do we have to get him to approve upon? What does he like to do? What should we ask him about that we could incorporate more into the offense? There's a lot of other things that you could do that will increase the ceiling of your passing attack and your offense as a whole after that bye week with a rookie quarterback. So the fact that no rookie in history has had to wait until week 14 is pretty notable. And he still delivered the numbers that he's delivered over the course of the season. So let me ask you this. Honest take on Mac Jones, and what do you see this Patriots offense doing out of the bye week? Like, what tweaks could they have implemented? What do you think they might have wanted to do that he was good at, but they weren't using it enough? Anything like that? Yeah, so I think, right, we talk about this passing attack has generally been underrated, and I very much agree. I think that they have done such a good job tweaking things in season, figuring things out in season. And that goes to your point of saying a lot of teams kind of ram their heads into walls and then they get to their bye week and they sit down and they say, what can we change? What should we do differently? Whereas it feels like the Patriots this year, it feels like Josh McDaniels this year, and this has been true in other seasons. Maybe it's been less pronounced because they always had Brady and they kind of have this high floor. But it feels like this season with Mac and, and this learning curve of having a rookie quarterback, they've really figured it out over the course of weeks, they figured it out over time. They've made the adjustments. This passing offense is unrecog not unrecognizable, is, is significantly different than the one you would have seen in week one and week two from an X's and O's perspective. In terms of who's on the field, you see their tight end snaps get cut down. You see their wide receiver snaps go up. In terms of who's getting targeted, you see their running back targets go way up, right? In terms of where receivers are getting targeted, you see that they're using Kendrick Bourne and Jacoby Myers much more as underneath guys now. And then they use their tight ends to get a little bit more down the field, right? They have changed the way this offense gets to its spots, right? It's been a growing and learning process for Mac Jones, for Josh McDaniels, and for this new marriage. So this passing offense is underrated. I do think that we shouldn't one-to-one -one that with saying that like Mac is 100% of that. Uh, I think that Mac probably is underrated, but I don't think it's all him in that way. I think that like Kendrick Bourne is a legit good player. I don't think he gets talked about like that, right? I think that their, their like running game is really 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 effective their screen game is really effective it's kind of the way that kevin Stefanski was able to buttress baker mayfield in 2020 with that running game and that screen game right so all of these things come together but mac is certainly playing well like i'll never forget watching mac against the browns and mac's just like dotting tight windows and you're like nobody saw this coming coming out of college this is awesome so you have all this now you get here to, to this game against indianapolis out of the bye week what do we expect to change something but I can't like like I don't I don't think anything big. It's been incremental change week in and week out. It's been a, a, a slow process of optimization. I don't think you're gonna see anything particularly stunning. If anything, it's gonna be the trick play they run to get a 30-yard pass to Nelson Aguilar from Jacoby Myers is gonna be cool this week. You know what I mean? Like that they kind of always have that little wide receiver pass in their in their back pocket to get that little free explosive play. Like that, that'll be fun. But other than like I I don't, I don't think it's gonna be these market big changes, not going to be like a Joe Lombardi, we're going to change, you know, our, our A dot coming out of the bye, which is stuff we've talked about. It's going to be a lot more incremental. That's what we've seen over the season. So I think Max's passing game is going to be good, and the, and the Patriots' passing game is going to be good against the Colts. And I think it's going to be good against the Bills next week, and I think it's going to continue to just be good and steady and reliable moving forward.
Yeah, and and you're right. Why would they want to change a lot, make wholesale changes? I just mentioned that this passing offense is one of the very best in the NFL. Um, I think the perception of Mac, right, because they run in a lot of touchdowns and he doesn't throw a lot. So his touchdown mark is only 16 and he's made some mistakes, though he's thrown eight interceptions. So those numbers won't like steal your heart, his TD to interception rate. But I mean, very, very quietly, he's got the third best completion percentage above expectation, even if you include the first three weeks of the season and his overall completion rate is third best in the NFL as well. A lot of this, obviously, as you said, attributed to scheme, philosophy, plays that they're calling. They're trying to put him into great positions more often than not. And uh, But he's been delivering. Um, it just has been overlooked a lot. Um, and, and momentarily, we also are going to discuss the weather and how that's factored in. Um, as we're talking about that and how it's helped the Patriots defense, keep in mind that when Mac is playing in these games, he's playing in those same conditions. So that's going to hurt his ceiling from a passing output in some of these games. But let's pivot into the Patriots defense. Uh, ben, you're looking at this defense and you're not sure really how good they are because they're better than last year. And we already talked about this last week, so I'm not going to ask you the same question. Um, but this team has the number three ranked defense in the NFL, but they really haven't played anybody. They've played the third easy schedule of opposing offenses. If you factor in that they play two of the best five offenses in literally impossible weather conditions, you got the gale force wins against the Buffalo Bills, the torrential downpour against the Bucks, the game that they played against the Browns, which you mentioned earlier, the Browns were like without half their offensive line, all of their running backs, an injured quarterback who wasn't practicing in full every single game leading up to that because of his injuries. I mean, I'm not saying that Bill Belichick is a sorcerer who conjures up weather ahead of these games with the great offenses, but I'm also not not saying it because I do think the signs are there. Um, the rest of the games that this offense, this Patriots defense has played, seven of the eight offenses ranked bottom 10 in the NFL. And I want to start with their run defense because if you talk about what Bill Belichick wants to do, he wants to take something away that you do well. And it seems logical that he would try to focus on taking Jonathan Taylor away and making Carson Wentz throw the ball on him. So you look at the overall year-to-date rankings of the Patriots run defense and you think it looks pretty good. But if you go and break it down, they have faced a lot of runs from non-traditional personnel group, like not 11 personnel or 12 personnel. They faced a lot of other personnel groupings teams have tried to run on them against, especially since week eight. So since week eight, do you know how many running back runs in the first half of games the Patriots have faced from 11 personnel? The answer, I won't make you guess, I'm about to seven. say, I don't even know how to I get will, around to a guess on that one. It's that that's a really arbitrary like endpoint, but the answer is seven. They have faced seven runs of 46 total runs that have come from 11 personnel. And that's what the Colts major in. Since week eight, same time frame, same first half of games. 45 of their 76 early down running back runs are from 11 personnel. It's the vast majority of what they do is they run out of 11 personnel. They're averaging 5.5 yards per carry, 56% success, and plus 0.15 EPA per attempt. The Patriots have not been run on against from 11 much, but when they have, they are allowing eight yards per carry, 67% success, and plus 0.12 EPA per attempt. They actually, if you strip out the runs with a fullback out on the field against the Patriots in the first half of games on early downs, 
They have the second worst run defense on 33 rushing attempts against them. They're allowing plus 0.15 EPA, 7.3 yards per carry, and 48% success. You might say, well, 48% success, that sounds reasonable. How in the world is 7.3 yards per carry? That's because of explosive gains. 21% of the runs versus the Patriots in this situation have generated explosive gains of 10 plus yards. That ranks dead last in the NFL. The average is only 10%. The Colts, you might have also guessed, have the number one best explosive rushing offense in the NFL. They're the most consistently solid EPA per attempt rushing offense as well during this time span. So Do you think Jonathan Taylor is what Bill Belichick focuses on taking away and how successful will Jonathan Taylor still be if that is what the Patriots decide to major in? Yeah, I always love whenever you go on these like big things with all these these stats and then you're like, so do you think Belichick's going to try to stop Jonathan Taylor? And I could just be like, yeah. Because that's what, like, that's, yeah, I guess that it's just Jonathan, like, that's what you have to do. Like, like, you know, it, it kind of like, it goes to show you that like a lot of times, coaches' intuitions can be off, but also, like, they intuitively can also get to the right spot. Like, even if you don't, like, go through all the data, it's like, all right, we clearly have to take away this guy, and how are we going to do it? Um, So run out of personnel is really important, right? That's a a big thing to be looking at, because in general, what you'll believe and be told is uh, if we're going to run the football, we need to get tight ends on the field, right? That's how we got to do it. We got to get tight ends and fullbacks on the field. They're going to give us the ability to run a variety of ideas, and they're going to give us the ability to execute the combo blocks that we want, right? Uh, being able to run out of spread, which is typically how you would describe running out of 11 personnel, is indicative of A, a really, really good offensive line, and B, a, 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 a core offensive line plus running back that's so good at one basic idea or two basic ideas that you don't need to be very multiple in terms of how you run the ball because out of 11 personnel, you're going to be limited in what you can block up. You don't need to be very multiple in terms of scheme. You can just get into your stuff and then win it. Uh, there are exceptions to that, right? Like the number one team in terms of running out of 11 personnel this year is the Rams. 78% of their runs uh, are out of 11 personnel, according to literally your website. That's because the Rams have a guy like Robert Woods, right? Who can kind of change the calculus a little bit. So there there, there are margins to color in here, but in general, that's what you're going to believe. So when you look at the Colts, uh, the Colts run out of 11 personnel and can do so successively, A, be successfully, A, because they run a lot of RPOs, right? And RPOs out of 11 is one of the major, uh, you know, shortcuts into being a running team out of the spread. Okay, well, we run RPOs. And then even if it doesn't show up as a run, it's a quick pass and it was an easy gain. And it's also helping us win the box count uh, discussion, helping us win the numbers discussion by forcing the team to respect the pass. That's number one. Number two is, are we able to uh, use our tight end in creative enough ways. And with a guy like Jack Doyle, the answer is yes, because Doyle is a very, 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 very good blocker. Very good run blocker. Very underappreciated part of the Colts offense. And then finally, you have a guy like Taylor, who in in how Taylor plays, this is an interesting conversation around like Nick Chubb and Derrick Henry as well, in how big he is and how physical he is, you want to run him in light personnel because you want to get the extra defensive back on the field. Because then that guy has to tackle Taylor, right? If we're running out of 11 personnel, it's four linemen, two line, two linebackers, and then that safety is the seventh man in the box. That nickel corner is the seventh man in the box. He's part of the run fit. Well, if we can block up the other six, and we make him be the guy, you know, that in terms of arithmetic, like, oh, we have a free man. He'll tackle Jonathan Taylor. But that dude's 195 pounds. We feel strongly that we have won the rep. We would like this, and we would like to do this over and over and over again. That's where you saw Buffalo get into a lot of trouble against the Colts. Buffalo lives in sub. 
So Teron Johnson, Micah Hyde, and Jordan Poyer were the three guys that were regularly tasked with meeting Jonathan Taylor in the hole. Arithmetic-wise, on the board, X's and O's, it's great. In practice, not so much, because Jonathan Taylor is a very large young man. He's really, really difficult to bring down. So this brings us to the Patriots. The Patriots want, in their run defense, to be able to play uh, their, their overfronts. They want to be able to play their underfronts. They want to be able to leave a B-gap bubble, right? And, and usually teams will see that and say, we're going to run to that B-gap. We're going to run right in that open space. And then they take one of Juwan Bentley or Donta Hightower, and they crash them into that gap. And those guys are absurdly physical. They are daring you to say, we're going to run inside zone and we're just going to run at this B-gap bubble. It's very standard coaching on offensive side of the ball because usually your climbing guard beats that linebacker. When it's New England, they don't because those linebackers are 255 pounds and they're nuts. So you're going to get four down fronts, you're going to get two linebackers, and they're going to dare the Colts to try to run between the tackles. And they believe that their guys are physical enough to win those blocks in the first level. That's where the big battle is, right? It's, it's Quentin Nelson, and uh, not Lewinsky anymore. Is it still Mark Lewinsky at right guard? I can't recall. Regardless, it's going to be, yeah, it, it's, um, oh, it's Danny Pinter, the guy at Ball State. It's going to be those two going up against Juwan Bentley and Donta Hightower when you're running inside zone. If the Colts don't have that, then they don't have uh, the numbers advantage in the RPO game. They don't have the quick game. So this is a nice matchup for the Patriots because the Patriots might still be living in sub. They might still have that extra defensive back on the field. They might still be giving you the boxes in the front that you want. But their linebackers play much better in the run, in spread, than I would say any other group of linebackers does. They are, like like uh, Deontay Lee of PFF has, has been saying this for a while, every other team is trying to hide their linebackers and with, with their fronts and, and cover up those B-gaps and, and cover up those interior players. The Patriots don't, and it's a trick. It's a trap. Don't, don't believe it. They make you think you have a good luck. Bentley and Hightower are way too good for that in terms of their run defense. So to me, it's a good advantage for the Patriots, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Colts are better running the football out of heavy than they are out of light in this game. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Fascinating discussion there. Uh, we'll definitely be looking for that. So let's pretend they do focus on that and they're looking to take away that run game. We literally just saw the Colts have to play left-handed against a team who has the number one ranked run defense in the first three quarters of games, and that's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And in the first half on early downs in that game, Carson Wentz had 19 early down dropbacks plus 0.31 EPA per attempt, 9.5 yards per attempt, 72% success. These were the RPOs, right? Frank had to discuss it after the game. They were showing looks that made us want to turn these into pass plays, and Carson Wentz was tearing them up. They leaned heavily on the pass. They put up 24 first-half points on their own. They led by 10 points at halftime. Talking about getting overlooked, the Indianapolis Colts offense is also getting overlooked. We said Mac Jones. Well, yeah, but look at the Colts offense and in particular, their passing offense has been great. And just in general, this team has been tested. Uh, this team, unlike the Patriots defense, has been tested. They've played seven top 13 defenses. They went six and one in those games and averaged 31 points per game. Uh, this team is scoring 30 plus points in every game against 
above average defenses. Now they're going up against the Patriots defense. So talk to me about when the Colts have the football and they're trying to throw it. How do you think they fare against this Patriots pass defense? Yeah, it's important to know and, and constantly remind one another that Patriots are a zone cover team this year. Weird, not usual, but it's it's a testament to the fact that Belichick can just do what he wants, right? And it's, it's absurd that he has that ability, but he does. Uh, so they're a zone cover defense this year. They have guys who are exploitable in that regard. Uh, they have, you know, Jalen Mills, who like to be able to target. Adrian Phillips is potentially out again for this game. Uh, we don't know the health situation 100% right now, but that means more Miles Bryant, potentially, who's a, a good cover guy, but he's smaller. You can win him in contested catch situations. Uh, J- uh, Joshua Bledsoe is a rookie, might get called up, right? Kyle Duggar is a, a limited participant right now, I want to say. So they're a little bit thin at safety, so they're in zone. There's guys that you can try to take advantage of. But general, it's a very well-coached group. So it's a take-what-you-get situation and Wentz has been a lot better at that this year than he was in years past that's the good news I think that Wentz plays well I think that the Colts have a lot of success moving the ball down the field in the air I don't think that the Patriots are going to sit on Indy the way that uh they're often able to sit on teams I don't think that they're able to take the wind out of the sails and I think that if there's a offensive coach that I like going up against Bill Belichick it's Frank Reich and how multiple he can be and how much he adjusts in game with that said, I can't promise you when the really bad Carson Wentz strip sack is going to happen. So I know they're going to score points. It's just I don't know how debilitating that though that player, maybe those two plays, you know, throw a pick in there. Those plays are going to be, and that's why handicapping the Colts can be really tough. Is because you know that the offense is going to either take seven points off of their board with a fumble in the red zone, or give seven points to the other board with a fumble in the opposite red zone, and that's the scary thing. So side total, this one sits Colts minus two right now. Total sits at 45 and a half. Where would you lean on either of those? Yeah, so that opening line, Colts one and a half, felt real fishy, right? Just wanted to get a lot of, uh, I, I was imagining books were hoping for public money in the Patriots, given what we've seen from them and the narratives around them. To me, that this line, pick them a little bit of a shade to the Colts is appropriate. If it gets down to three, I'll take the Patriots. If not, I'll put them in every teaser in the book because I'd be stunned if they lose by more than a possession just in terms of how well coached they are, how well they can run the football, so on and so forth. I don't think the Colts are able to jump out to that huge lead and then maintain it. And so right now, I'm not taking anything, but I think this line still moves around. Um, and like I said, if, if, I, if I get Patriots plus two, I'll tease that down to plus eight and I'll be I'll throw that in everything that exists. To me, that's one of the better teaser lines that we get this year. Total-wise, I, I lean over, probably not going to take it, but if I were to take a side, that's where I'd be. Yeah, I do think this is going to be a big, big public side here on the New England yep. Patriots as a dog. Um, so we'll be interesting to see what the books do with the line from here on out. Let's switch over to probably a less compelling matchup right now just because of the players in this one uh, on the Saints side of the football. But they're taking on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And and remarkably, this is, I think, a testament more than anything to Sean Payton um, and his greatness. But the Saints have won six of the last seven games in this series, including three of the last four that had Tom Brady at the helm. Um, in these games, Brady has scored an average of just 6.7 first half points. Compare that to all the other games that Brady has played with Tampa. He's averaging 17.8 first half points. We're talking less than a touchdown against the Saints and over two touchdowns plus a field goal against everybody else. So real quick, credit pie. We do blame pie. Let's do a credit pie for the Saints defense versus Tom Brady. How much of his is is Dennis Allen? How much of it is the players and the matchups? How much of it is the general scheme? Right. So Dennis Allen gets the biggest piece, right? And that's kind of like directly tied into scheme just in terms of, of what they do works really well. They are an aggressive 
match team, right? Where they're going to play with those two deep safeties. Um, and then they are going to close down in on your routes. And they're going to dare you to sit in that pocket for three seconds, wait until their safeties trigger on intermediate stuff, and then throw it deep down the field. They're going to dare you to do that. And that's really tough to do because this pass rush can play. Uh, and then you, you have to have the arm strength to do it. You have to have the accuracy to do it. And usually the guy that you're trying to beat in that regard is Marshall Lattimore. And he gets the second biggest piece of the pie because Marshall Lattimore versus Mike Evans has been a heavyweight fight for as long as I can remember. And it's the best thing in the world. Uh, I love rivalries. Like we, we lose them a lot, I think, in the modern NFL. And just Marshall Lattimore and Mike Evans straight hating each other is to me appointment television. Like I, I love that. And so Lattimore gets a lot of credit because he does a really good job uh, of f- flustering and frustrating Evans. Um, and then Allen gets a ton of that credit as well because of what he's able to do schematically. And that kind of trickles down to the, how important DeMario Davis is, right? To how they match their stuff. Marcus Williams is really good. The Saints have a little bit of of injury and availability right now, right? They Needing Chauncey Gardner-Johnson back for this game would be really, really, really nice. Um, but in general, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good defense. It had a bad stretch there for the last few games and watching it was kind of weird. But back against the Jets, Jets are a great get-right team. You're like, this is what it usually looks like. This is what it's supposed to look like. Whether or not it holds its medal against the, the Bucks, we'll see. Because like I said, it had a rough stretch there in November. Um, but in general, to me, this is a trustworthy defense, especially now uh, against Tampa Bay. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised. Like The Bucks' schedule is cakewalk after this. They just really need to win this one, and then they're probably the number one seed in the NFC. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the Saints understand that and give them really a, a, a good run as they usually do. So I think this is, this ends up a lot closer and a lot tougher than than people expect. Yeah, it's it's just amazing how good of a job Sean Payton does scheming things up offensively to do enough uh, in these games. But before last week's game against the Jets, the Saints team, you know when their last win was? It was week eight against Brady's Bucks. They've lost five straight before beating the Jets. And even the game against the Jets, Ben, was not pretty. It was just a 10 to six game at halftime. It was a touchdown game at the start of the fourth quarter. Um, The Saints with Taysom Hill, as you might expect, with his finger and all that, 65% run the first three quarters. Uh, They were generally successful. Obviously, they had Alvin Kamara back, but Taysom was terrible, passing them all in the first half, improved a bit in the second half. this in general kind of feels like a little bit of a pop gun offense with Taysom Hill, like not really explosive down the field, not really going to threaten you. And, you know, even if you forget the fact that you got the number one offense of the Bucks and Tom Brady standing on the other side of the field, this is a below average Saints offense going up against the number seven ranked defense in the NFL of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Tampa Bay. What do you see happening here when the Saints have the ball? What did you see from this offense with Alvin Kamara back last week? Do you think that this offense can do enough to stay inside the number, or do you think it's going to come down to the defense? Yeah, it is. uh, If Sean Payton beats the Bucs with Taysom Hill, then the whole Taysom Hill thing will have been worth it, man. I I, I, (laughs) like. The whole years of just absolute trolling, I'll be fine with it. Like As long as we get that, that'll be the funniest thing in the world. And that's the thing, is that I think you watch the the primetime game, right, against the Cowboys. You watch the uh, the game against the Jets, and you look and you say, all right, this team is 65% run, but it's not as much like option stuff. It's not as much designed quarterback stuff as you would expect. Like, all right, they're a super run-heavy team, and the quarterback is way better at running than passing. They're involving him a lot, right? And they really aren't. And I don't know if that's a obstinance thing. And like, we, we want to be this sort of a way. We want to run this offense. That seems weird for Sean Payton. I wonder to the degree to which a, the degree to which it's a, we want to hold our best pitch sort of a thing. And I wouldn't be surprised if they come out 
And we got to remember what Jalen Hurts did to this Saints defense last month in terms of this quarterback run game and how much difficulty the Saints had fitting that up. Zone read, right? Counter bash, right? Arc read, all of the good, like Lamar Jackson-inspired quarterback run stuff the Eagles ran. Because if the Saints see that and, and on defense, and can't handle it from Philadelphia, right? You hope that they look at their offense and say, we could be doing some of this. This, 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 this could be available. So this seems like it's working pretty well uh, and bring that out against the Bucks. So my belief is that the Saints are able to keep this close. And it's predicated on the idea that offensively, they're going to involve Taysom Hill in the running game from snap one in the design, not in the scramble, in the design a lot more than they have. And that's a bit of a gut thing. That's a bit of a why aren't they doing this? Were they like, well, what's the point of not doing this? I imagine now against the Bucks, this is kind of like, rubber meets road time. The Saints are still very much in the playoff picture as well. We need to acknowledge that for the seventh seed. And so I think they're going to involve Taysom in the running game a lot more. I think the running game is going to be successful against the Bucs. Bucs run defense has been really good this year, but not nearly as elite as it was last year. And now all of a sudden, you take a lot of time off the clock. You limit Brady's possessions. Your defense has been good against him. I have the Saints plus seven on the first half line. And I think that's because the Saints come out with a, a quarterback run heavy game plan that it takes the Bucs time to adjust to. I think they make that first half go by really fast. And I think they're able to keep that within a possession. So that's the angle I like for this one. Looking at this game and the, specifically the Bucks run defense, this is a run defense that still ranks number one in the NFL th- first three quarters against running backs. But you can run on them if you're a quarterback. And we've seen that with Jalen Hurts. We saw that with Josh Allen last week. Absolutely 100% agree. If Sean Payton is listening, he's got to utilize Taysom Hill as a running back from the jump. Run with Taysom Hill. That is going to be your best chance for success here. Any thought on the total in this one, Ben? Sits at 46 and a half right now. Difficult for me to take just because I don't know. Like like that expectation on the running game indicates a shorter game, and that always freaks me out when it comes to taking a total. Like in my head, 46 and a half is too low, but we know what the Saints defense is done for the Bucs, and I think that the Saints offense might be able to slow this game down. So on the game script I'm expecting, I lean under, but that is scary for a team like the Bucs who have shown us that they can just like score 21 points and a half in a very casual way. Uh, and so it, I'm probably not going to touch that as well. I like the, the, the Saints first half lines best in terms of how I expect this game to run. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's transition into a big game in the NFC where we got the Falcons taking on the 49ers. And 
this is just crazy to me. So number one, if you look at the Falcons, they have played seven of their last eight games against defenses that rank 11th or better. It's been an absurd stretch. We can talk about Arthur Smith. Oh, the offense isn't looking this great. Oh, they don't have Calvin Ridley, all this stuff. Like the defenses that they are having to go up against have been ridiculous, okay? If there's one way to beat the 49ers defense, it's to pass the ball on them. They have the NFL's number three ranked run defense and number 21 against the pass. I don't understand this about what Arthur Smith is doing here, though, Ben. So maybe you can help me out. Elena's offense is, to me, is one of the most nonsensical from a run pass rate by down. On first downs, this team is number two run rate in the NFL. They run the ball 58% of their offensive plays. These average only 3.6 yards per carry, which is 29th in the NFL. So they do it at the second highest rate and the runs absolutely suck. Then on second and third down, they switch to the number two most pass-heavy team in the NFL. They pass the ball 75% of the time on their offensive plays. No team in the league is close to being that silly. If you look at the other top five teams in run rate, which is on first downs, which is the Titans and the Cardinals and the Bears and the Eagles, all of them remain top 10 in run rate on second and third down. If you look at the other top five teams in pass rate on second and third down, like the Bucks, the Jets, the Steelers, and the Raiders, and you say, well, what do they do on first down? All of them are well above average in pass rate on first down as well. I have no idea why you go from the number two ranked run heavy most run heavy offense in the league on first down and you're terrible at it to then just like, okay, forget that. We got that out of the way. Let's just be the number one, uh, number two most pass heavy team in the league on second and third down. How do you think that this passing attack of the Atlanta Falcons matches up against the weakness of the 49ers defense, which is to throw the ball on them. And is there any logic to what the fuck Arthur Smith is doing here? <laughs> Good question. Uh, so, right. So your play calls on your sheet are divided out by down and distance, right? So we have our, we got our first and 10 play calls. Then we have our, our second down play calls, you know, second and one to three, second and four to six, second and seven to 10, second and 10 plus. Then we have our third down play calls kind of in the same general buckets. Those are just like general parameters. Uh, your second down play call is going to be conditional on what happens on first down then, right? And so when we say, all right, Atlanta's one of the heaviest rushing teams on first down in the league, as of, and, and and that swing is humongous going back the other way for their second down and for their third down. Well, if you look at their rushing success rate on first downs, which I'm looking at since week five here right now, they're 28th in the league. They have a rushing success rate of less than 30%. So on less than 30% of those first down runs, are they getting what is key to the success, right? Which is like a positive EPA on a play, which is getting four to five yards in that first down. So probably for Smith, assuming he's calling plays pretty formulaically, don't know if that's a word, uh, he's calling that first down run, expecting to get to a second and six, expecting to get to a second, a second down where he feels he can run the ball again, and he's not. And so then subsequently, he goes to the second and long part of his play sheet which has a lot more passes, right? And that's kind of how you get into your, your swing as a play caller. Whether or not that's like that, that that's standard, right? That's 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 common practice. Where the wisdom fails there, where the link fails there is a different conversation, right? Should it be, all right, well, let's just pass the ball on first now because these first and 10 runs aren't working. Or should it be, all right, our first and 10 runs aren't working. We want to be a first and 10 running team. We have to change the way we run the football. Should it be our offensive line is abysmal? We should just never be trying to run the ball under any circumstances ever. Is it we have to run on first and 10 to set up our first and 10 play action shots? Like there's a lot of conversations that go into that. There's been a lot of analytics discourse on that. There's been a lot of coaching discourse on that. Where Atlanta is right now, and, and this is week 15. I've been saying this since week one. They're in figure out what works for us mode, right? That, to me, that's whole season. 
right? Like you've seen these random games of like a lot of Alameda Zacchaeus targets, right? You saw like the really heavy Kyle Pitts games and those just like went away. There were the games where he was like majorly a tight end and then the games where he was majorly a receiver. Cordero Patterson's been amazing for them. They're back to giving Mike Davis the third down targets, right? Like they have made a lot of decisions that in my opinion are not optimal. And to me, I don't take that right now as a vote of no confidence in Smith, who I think made a lot of really optimal decisions in Tennessee. I take that much more so as a an offensive designer and a team that understands we are in figure out what we can and can't do mode. We're in figure out who sticks for us and who doesn't mode. What our, our offensive line works out, what they don't mode, right? And, and that discovery process to me leads to some really weird outcomes. In general, I think that's why you've seen the Falcons as a team do really good against bad teams and really bad against good teams, right? They've been very polar in that way where they get like the Jaguars, they get like the Panthers, they get the Jets and they just beat up on those guys. And then they get, you know, Tampa or they get like even like the Eagles in week one. You know what I mean? They get the Patriots and they just get absolutely punched in the nose because they're in like experimentation mode. So if they're not out talenting you, they're getting beat up on. And that's why this line is as big as it is. Like this looks like a, a chunky, chunky line for a San Francisco team that's like kind of unreliable, but they're a generally good team. And Atlanta has not held up against those teams down the stretch. I want to ask you about Debo Samuel's usage as a running back now. He has just one catch in each of his past three games, and he's seen seven total targets over that span. But he's ran the ball 22 times for 182 yards and four touchdowns in those games. Without rattling every single one of these off to you, I put them in the show notes. Uh, if you look at the yardages that each of his rushing attempts have gained over his last three games, you'll notice something that really stands out and you can see it better visually than just me sharing it over the podcast. But he has had a lot more chunk gains earlier on as they started using him as a running back. When they use him somewhat sparingly at the beginning of the season, a lot of chunk gains. Week 11, they come out and run him a lot as a running back, and most of his runs gained nine-plus yards. Week 12, it was a little bit less than that. And then last week against the Bengals, he had one run, and I don't know how many attempts are on here. Maybe there's eight, nine. One run that gained more than four yards. It was 27-yard touchdown. All the other runs were like four yards, three yards, two yards, two yards, two yards, zero yards, negative three yards. The surprise factor has dwindled. Samuel is still running pass routes at a high volume in these games, uh, but they're just throwing the ball to George Kittle and Brandon Ayuk. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to get Elijah Mitchell back this week, but do you think that Kyle Shanahan utilizes Debo Moore as a primary pass catcher when Mitchell is back? And if he doesn't, do you love this usage of Debo? Because it seems like the the it's a good way to get a dude injured, especially if he's busting out one nice run when he catches the team off guard and then having a lot of two-yard runs when that doesn't happen. And that's the way this is trending in this experiment. Yeah, but you say that the surprise factor is going away. I see like explosive run rate of like 12%. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I obviously, you know, picking my spots there. The um, the Debo usage has been A, very cool. B, extremely valuable to the 49ers. Uh, when you can get these, like I talked about the Patriots with their gadget plays. This is a gadget play with Debo, right? Like sometimes they're like lining him up as a running back and giving him a handoff and he's running like inside zone. That is just, you know, he's very good, whatever. These explosives are coming on gadget looks, right? Like these reverses, this orbit motion into the backfield, this single wing nonsense. That's a gadget style play. And when you get an explosive out of a gadget, you won, period. That is exactly what you were doing that for. Nice. In general, 
obviously, it, if you have a player who can either catch a pass down the field or get a handoff, it's better for him to catch a pass down the field because that's a better play. Passing is better than running. You get more explosive, more yards, more reliable. Like that's inarguable. But for the 49ers who are in like peak Shanahan concoction, how do I get an offense out of Jimmy G mode? This Debo uh, uh, reverse game has been a, a, a big and valuable part of that. And I think that it, it's tremendous and it's good that they have it. The trend that we see is just a reminder that defenses adjust. They catch up. And you always have to stay ahead. You always have to have a counter punch. So all of a sudden, it's going to be Debo reversing through the backfield. And then it's going to be an actual handoff to a running back because the the off, the defense's eyes get pulled to Debo a little bit more than if that were just like, you know, Cooper Cup doing it for the Rams or whatever. That running game becomes a little bit easier for that back. Or they're going to, you know, flip a ball to, to George Kittle on a little shovel pass going the other way. And that's going to become an explosive game, right? This is serious football. It's what it always is with Shanahan and McVay. You do things to set up the next thing, and then you set up the next thing off of that, and then you set up the next thing off of that. So for as long as Shanahan can stay one step ahead, and historically he does, I have no problem with how he uses Debo. Because this usage, making a defense watch a receiver go into the backfield and still have to honor him as a legitimate threat, is a nightmare to deal with from an X's and O's perspective, from a, a tendency perspective. This is really, really difficult stuff. So keep doing this. And so long as the offense works, because we can't argue the offense hasn't been working. It's been working great. As long as the offense works, I got no problem with Debo's distribution. Because I think using him as this gadget has given them an extra layer to the offense that has helped keep the Jimmy G ship afloat. And that's why they're in the whole position right now for the playoff race. You know, I, I we, we got to have like a town hall meeting with Bill Simmons moderating, do a gambling show town hall or somewhere where we can go for two hours and eventually take audience questions. It would be fun as shit. So we can't dive into a Jimmy G assessment. I would love to talk to you about more about Jimmy G. I just need a, a, a quick answer here on this game this week. 49ers are favored by nine. Total sits at 46. Side total, any thoughts? Yeah, liked the Niners better at eight, obviously. I think I would still take them at nine. And man, I know, again, that, that feels really chunky. But Atlanta, to me, has just not been a trustworthy team against good units. San Francisco's defense continues to, in my opinion, be an underrated unit that's playing very, very well. Obviously, San Francisco got buttressed a little bit with the, the mock punts against the Bengals with bad Zach Taylor decision-making. So we don't want to overrate that win against that playoff opponent a little bit too much. But over the course of the last month, San Francisco's been a very reliable team. They're in a position where they're pushing for the playoffs. They're getting healthier in general on offense. They're at home against a bad Atlanta team. To me, this is a establish your dominance sort of a position. I think they'd run the ball all over Atlanta. I do like uh, Niners minus nine for even as big as the line is. Any thoughts on that total at 46? So in general, I'll take the over in this one because I think that when you when you have a, a big favorite, you're expecting points. Like to, I expect the Niners to be somewhere up in the 30s. And then I think I can get 15 out of Atlanta. So to me, 46, I'll take the over. Okay. We're going to move on. Got three more games, five minutes a pop. We'll start with Washington Philly. I know this is your team, the Eagles. So I'm going to just give you the floor and ask you for your open-ended for about four minutes take on this game, the matchup, what we should be looking for. And then is there any value in this number? Right now, the Eagles have been apparently once again taking a lot of heavy, sharp money. This thing opened at two and a half at some spots, three others. Now it's up as high as five and a half to six at some spots. Um, and the total sits at 44. Yeah, so I, I got this one at three uh, and I, I made it at about five. Then the Josh Allen news came. Then the Kyle Fuller and Matt Ioannidis news came. All of these players are on the COVID list currently for Washington. Uh, so it's very difficult to say just how much Washington's defense will be depleted. Um, but what we're 
seeing and experiencing with Washington is that they're doing a really nice job taking the air out of opposing passing attacks. They did it with Tampa Bay. They did it with the Raiders. They even did it to a, a bit of a degree with the Cowboys, right? That game was an 18 to nothing, 21 to nothing deficit early, but had a lot to do with turnovers and short fields. And really, they were generally strong in terms of success rate against the Cowboys offense. It's just they were putting bad field position spots. So uh, you look at an Eagles team and you're like, all right, this Washington defense is good. Here we go to match up against the Eagles. Eagles don't really try to throw the football, right? The Eagles are, are a, a, a good offense in a different mode, in a different caliber. We can't really one-to-one how the Cowboys played against pocket passers like Prescott, Carr, and Brady, and then look at it at like, like a guy with Jalen Hurts and how this offense works. Hurts is expected to be back. Uh, Miles Sanders is expected to be back. So this is the Eagles' run-first, run-option sort of an offense. And to me, that offense uh, is nicely suited to take advantage of a Washington defense that wants to have a lot of defense alignment on the field. It wants to have box safeties and linebackers on the field. They don't have a lot of team speed altogether. It's been a problem for them. I know they've been getting Jamin Davis on the field more, but besides that, they really don't have a lot of second-level speed. And that's where the Eagles are going to take advantage of you with their RPOs, with their quick-hitting stuff to the outside. So I expect the big Jalen Hurts running day. First bet I take when player props open will be Jalen Hurts rushing yards as it uh, you know traditionally is this season. Um, but if it's anything like it usually is, which is the mid-50s, that's a line that, that I'm certainly willing to take against Washington. So I expect that to work well. And then you have a Taylor Heineke offense that's doing better. Uh, he, he plays very well in the clutch. He makes these incredible third down throws. The Logan Thomas absence really hurts. They've really missed J.D. McKissick. We don't know the status of McKissick coming back for this game. Uh, and in general, while they are a clutch offense, and that can be a scary thing to bet against, it isn't the, the, the best offense from a pure down-to-down perspective. It's very volatile. Uh, this Eagles defense has been be- playing better down the stretch. They're not just sitting in too high anymore. They're blitzing a little bit better, right? They'll rotate a little bit more. They're doing the, the stuff they should have been doing for a while. And so the Eagles defense is a fine unit. Washington will get theirs. But in general, I expect the Eagles running game to be really, really effective for four quarters. I expect them to be very, very run heavy as they've been with Hertz as the starter. They should be able to control the game on that side of the ball. It'll be interesting. Washington obviously plays a totally different style. Their ideal strategy is playing with the lead running the ball, chewing up the clock, shortening the game. Uh, But when they get down on the scoreboard, then we saw last week just a bunch of YOLO ball from Heineke. I mean, his ADOT was ridiculous. He was just chucking the ball uh, down the field. Okay, four minutes on the next game. The Bengals at the Broncos. This game has massive AFC playoff implications with both teams sitting at seven and six. Right, The Bengals... Uh, open as an underdog here. They were catching one and a half points, and now this line is out to two and a half. Some spots out west are up to three at this point. Total is sitting right around 44 points. Side, total, what do you like in this game and why? Really, really difficult game to figure out. One of the trickiest ones for me this week. Uh, Broncos running game has been really, really impressive, man. Both Melvin Gordon and and Javante Williams are playing great ball, uh, and this offensive line is moving dudes off the line of scrimmage. Bengals run defense has been impressive. Bengals did a good job against the Niners. Bengals have done a good job against a lot of good running offenses so far this season. Uh, Against Cleveland, against Baltimore, it's been legit. It's a little bit of a strength versus strength, which is always tricky because somebody's going to win and they're probably going to win big. And it's 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 hard to figure that out. If I'm anywhere, I honestly think I'm with the Bengals defense. I really think that's an impressive unit. Obviously, the health and the availability of Trey Hendrickson is something to watch over the course of this game. I'm not taking this line until it gets to three. But in general, I think Cincinnati's defense has enough pass rush juice and enough uh, 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 disguise on the back end. Right, They got to move guys around a little bit. They play that too high structure that they're able to slow down Teddy enough that the Broncos really have to live on the running game. And if that's the case, 
it can work, but that that is a that it's a narrow road to walk, as we know. Flip the side of the ball, uh, and you get this Bengals passing game, which I just I this has always been the strength of the team is the passing game. And they got a running game working. I remember talking with you about saying, like, the running game is better. It's huge news for them. And then they hit the Niners and they just decided to just run it. And it's like, man, we we've jumped the shark here a little bit. Let's go back to what was initially the plan for the offense. And what the running game will be a nice, nice additional part, a nice, nice change that we have. Against Denver, they can defend the pass really well, right? Um, but this quarter's defense is going to give you off cover uh, over the number one receivers or the outside receivers. Right? They're going to give you five, eight-yard cushion. That's how the alignment has to work. So if you're trying to throw in the middle of the field, you're trying to throw benders and digs and crossers, you're in trouble. That's what this defense wants to take away. If you just want to throw jump balls, which is what the Bengals love doing, T. Higgins and Jamar Chase, it's a good defense to get because you're not getting pressed off the line. right? So you're going to get that free-release vertical. And if you just want to live... Chucking the ball out to T. Higgins and Jamar Chase on the sideline, which I do not mind as a general strategy, given how these guys have played. This defense will give it to you. And and certainly we generally in the world try to avoid Patrick Sertan, but if we're throwing up Fuller, it's not the biggest dude in the world. Uh, you can get away with that. I think the Bengals are enough. And and I understand why they're the dog. Uh, I understand that they, they have proven they're a team of the low ceiling. But in general, I have more trust in Burrow. I have more trust in this receiver room. And I do continue to have faith in this defense. So if I can wait and get this thing at three, sick. If not, I'm going to do exactly what I do with the Patriots. I'm going to throw this thing in a teaser and I'm going to feel good. The Bengals, even if they're down early, can throw themselves back within a possession in this one. Any lean total of 44? Uh, Probably the over in that regard. Okay. Uh, like I said, I trust the explosiveness of the Bengals passing game. And if uh, the Bengals are getting those stops in the running game, uh, this game is going to go long enough. The concern is always with the Broncos that they get those freaking like 13 play drives that take eight minutes and absolutely kill me every single time. Yeah, the Broncos have a great red zone defense, but the Bengals lead the league in touchdowns scored from outside of the red zone, which might be important right. in this game for them to have some success. Okay, Thursday night football, another game that's been shaken up a little bit by COVID as well. Uh, you've got the Chiefs at the Chargers rematch from earlier this season. The Chiefs turned the ball over four times in that first matchup. The Chargers turned three of those four into touchdowns, including the fourth quarter game winner. Last time, they didn't have Frank Clark, Melvin Ingram, Jadavis Ward, and Willie Gay. This time, they don't have Chris Jones, which is obviously a big loss. Tyron Matthew came out and talked about the loss of Chris Jones at defensive tackle for this game. Your take on this one in about four minutes. Go wherever you want, but give us a pick on side or total if you have one. Okay, so on the Sunday show, for those crossover listeners that we have, uh, I said that I thought the Chargers were going to blow out the Bengals. And, and by wanted... the way, by the way, you should be a crossover listener. There's no reason not to be listening to the NFL Ringer show. It's absolutely incredible. And to listen to the gambling show. Continue. Yeah, go birds. Okay, so I said the Chargers are going to blow out the Chiefs. And I do want to say that... I just watched Herbert against the Giants and he was nuts. And I was kind of a little bit nuts at the time as well. That's number one. Number two, obviously, you know, we've had some COVID inavailabilities come out since then. Rashawn Slater is a guy that's potentially on the list for Thursday. Uh, Chris Jones, as Warren brought up. Uh, we know Keenan Allen is probably back off the list. We know that Derwin's going to try to play. We know that Austin Eckler probably could have played in the Giants game if he needed to. So we're, we're getting more information as this goes. But I thought the Chargers going to blow out the Chiefs. There were two main reasons. Number one is the change on offense. Uh, we've always talked about this offense being structurally what it's supposed to be, but in terms of its choices, its decision-making, when it, when it takes its shots, how it wants to act aggressive or passive. It was not what it wanted to be. We've just seen it be so much more aggressive these last two weeks, and that's something I'm willing to buy in on. If I'm wrong on that, 
because it's been a, a, a flash in the plan. It's been a little bit of a, of a, a luck of the draw. I'm going to be okay with that, but I'm generally going to believe in explosive offense. That's going to be where I, I, I make and lose my money. So that's number one. Number two is because I wrote about this Chiefs defense last week, and it's been very impressive to see how much better it's gotten. But the absolute 100% biggest improvement is points per game in terms of like EPA per play and in terms of like yards per play and yards per drive and in terms of like turnover rate and explosive play rates rendered. It's better, not nearly as better as points per game is or would indicate. And so there's a little bit of a house of cards here thing where it's like, all right, the Chiefs defense is definitely better, but they've also just gotten some really nice coin flips in terms of turnovers on the opposite side of the 50 and in terms of field position and things like that you look at a chargers team that even when the offense was irritating generally had this ability to be mistake free right they had some bad red zone turnovers in the first couple weeks of the season but then really really settled in became a really effective red zone team became a really effective third down team whatever and you say all right even if they aren't their most explosive selves they aren't their most downfield selves i think this is the this is too good of an offense for the Chiefs to be able to just bend, not break, bend, not break, bend, not break all the way for four quarters. I, I, I think there's too much talent on the Chargers side of the ball. I also think the Chargers defense is playing a lot better. And this is almost 100% of film take is for in terms of EPA per play and success rate. They're like around league average. So they're a little bit better in the running game. But Linville Joseph potentially back. Brandon Fajoko has established himself on the defensive line as well. This defensive run run front, right, which has been their big issue early, is playing a lot better. You're able to get Derwin, potentially Asante Samuel back for this game. This defense is getting healthier. And and, and after incurring a lot of injuries early, the linebacking core had to be totally turned around. That light bulb that you see go on for teams that run match coverages, right? Where like one week they're bad and the next week they're amazing. Like it's always like a very quick change. It's starting to hit. Uh, this Staley defense is, I think, starting to realize itself. And I think he gets to play against the Chiefs the way that he wants to. In terms of that, you saw them play a lot of two-man. You saw them play a lot of match quarters against the Chiefs in week one. Yeah, or week three, excuse me. You're going to see that again, but they have better personnel to do it. Uh, and they have personnel that's been together for a lot longer to do it. Uh, I think the Chargers win it. And I'm on Chargers money line. I'm on Chargers divisional futures. Because if the Chargers win this game, then they're like 90% to win the AFC West or something like that. So if you like the Chargers, that's the position you want to take. But I'll also probably take Chargers alt lines. Because I would not be surprised if the Chiefs score quite low in this game this is the exact sort of defense that's been stopping them this year and i wouldn't be surprised if the Chargers score points on them so i'll probably have a bigger position on thursday night football than i usually do barring no more covid news because to me this is the last opportunity to buy low on the chargers and i want to get in before the window shuts outstanding well that will do it for this episode thank you everyone for listening we'll be back on friday where instead of picking a guy like ben solak's brain i'm going to pick joe house's brain to get all of his bets Thanks to Ben Solak for joining me. Thanks to Mike Wargon and Craig Holbrook for producing the show. We will see you guys back here on Friday.